Welcome to Corestruction, a show about the missions, activities, and employees of the Tulsa District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I'm your host, Brandon Parrish. Today, I'm joined by Chris Strunk. Chris is the Chief of Military Interagency and International Services and Design here at the Tulsa District. He's a licensed professional engineer and a licensed structural engineer. He holds a Bachelor of Architectural Engineering from Oklahoma State University with a focus in structural engineering and a secondary focus in mechanical engineering. Welcome to Corestruction, Chris. Thank you, Brandon. Can you tell me what you do as the chief of the uh, Interagency International Services, how that might be a little different from from the other missions? So, yeah, that one is probably a a little uh, different from uh, some of our more straightforward missions. Uh, Military uh, design is easy to understand. The the IIS portion that... uh, interagency international services what we do there is that's where we're supporting other agencies uh, uh, FEMA uh, NIST uh, uh, let's see we've uh, the VA any of the the non DOD type agencies that that reach out to the core and need support uh, I'm the design section that would support them uh, within Tulsa district so you're working the VA project too you're, you're over. You're overseeing those guys who are working that. Well, no, those are Dam Safety Production Center, right? Uh, the Dam Safety Production Center is doing that work for my section. Uh, we're uh, over those projects, uh, so it's kind of like when we outsource work to an AE or to a, a contracted work. Instead of uh, going outside the core, we went to the DSPC to assist us on uh, two of the projects at the uh, uh, BA in Muskogee, uh, the Lower Hillside, and. Uh, more recently uh, being that one, uh, and then the Upper Hillside stabilization that they did a, a few years back. Okay, so you came to the Corps, you came to the Tulsa District in 2009, that's right? Yeah, that's correct. I joined uh, July of 2009, so it's just been over, what's that? 11 years. 11 years, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so tell me, uh, with that, um, was that right out of college? Well, you did some work right out of college for some for some. Uh, my professional career started in about '98. Uh, I was a, attending Oklahoma State. I started interning uh, in the over holiday breaks and over the summer at uh, Wallace Engineering here in Tulsa, and then I worked there through about 2005. And then I joined uh, Philip Slaughter Rose, uh, a local design build firm. Uh, before joining the Corps in 2009, so I've worked for uh, two private sector firms, one large structural engineering company and one design build company before coming to the core. And um, so one of the things that, it, one of the reasons that we had you on today was because we were going to talk about the, your deployment to Florida. Um, but before we get into that, how, how many other deployments have you been on, been on since you've been here as a civilian? Uh, as a civilian with the Corps, uh, a few. Uh, uh, I'm part of the uh, structural uh, specialist cadre uh, it's an urban search and rescue group that the Corps is responsible for uh, uh, maintaining and training under ESF-9 uh, with FEMA. It's a, uh, under that type of deployment as a, as a, as a PRT or, re, or a response team, uh, I've deployed most recently to Ridgecrest Earthquake uh, out in uh, California, uh, Hurricane Henry in Texas. Um, and then most recently, the uh, uh, Champlain Tower collapse in uh, Surfside, Florida. What uh, what what kind of work do you guys do as far as like when when they request a structural engineer to to go out there for for and you said ESF nine that's the what is it emergency system framework emergency response system framework something yes. like that right. Um, most of the core is probably more more familiar with the EOC type work that we do um, in house uh, with the ESF three missions. Um, uh, ESF nine is is the urban search and rescue, and that's uh, a FEMA led uh, response team. But the core has the the uh, responsibility of training, like I said, the structural engineers that that are part of those teams. Those are large teams. There's uh, uh, several large federal teams. And then states also have teams. Uh, Oklahoma, by the way, has two state teams, Oklahoma uh, 1 and Oklahoma 2. Um, each of those has um, six structural engineers that have been trained. And we train all of them, whether they're core employees or whether they're private engineers that are, are one of the state teams or one of the federal teams. Um, we do that out of Moffett Field 
uh, out in California at Ames uh, Research Facility. Uh, it's an older NASA uh, installation. But what we do as part of that team is uh, we help, what we like to say is we help make it safer for the rescuers. Uh, we're there to provide our expertise in uh, buildings and, and unfortunately uh, most often building collapse uh, to help identify uh, uh, access paths or routes that uh, the rescuers can get in and hopefully uh, re uh, rescue victims. Um, and after, after rescue, as it moves into recovery, we kind of maintain that same mission where we're there to provide guidance on how to basically take apart a, a, a damaged structure. What, what are you looking for when you're trying to identify a safe path or, or, or what, type of, what type of indicators are out there that would tell you, hey, this, this is safe or this isn't safe? Uh, we, we do a lot of training. We do a lot of case studies on uh, previous events. Uh, uh, some of those have, uh, date back to like the Murrow Building. The Corps was uh, uh, very active in the Murrow Building, uh, providing engineers to support that. Uh, as well as 9-11. Uh, um, and what we're looking for, uh, we have a couple different missions. Uh, if, if we're on scene first, one of the things we do is like a rapid assessment uh, of the site and determine if there's any hazards that um, as, a, as a building professional, um, we may be more inclined to notice. Uh, those could be uh, like overhead uh, hanging things that, that may fall and, and and hurt someone that as they're trying to approach and breach into a, a damaged building. Um, or it could be something about, uh, uh, based on our knowledge of how the framework, as a structural engineer, how the framework of a building uh, works, uh, that we can provide some guidance on uh, where are better paths of access and egress, where most likely the stairwells were, the hallways are. Uh, you know, most buildings have a typical kind of uh, template and if we don't have the drawings, you kind of have to use your, your, your professional knowledge of how things are laid out. And we then provide that to the rescuers and say, well, like the, the Champlain Tower, you know, this is a, an apartment complex. So uh, typical apartments are laid out. You know, you've got a, 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 an entryway, maybe uh, a kitchenette or a dining area, and then an apartment, um, depending on how many rooms obviously are, are in the apartments. And so once you kind of figure out what that layout is, you can start doing your, your um, excavation and, and access work by the rescuers to try and get in and, like I said, and get those victims that may be trapped. Uh, we're, what we're specifically looking for like areas of refuge where if, if there's a place that it's more likely that someone would have gone to. Um, and a lot of our, our uh, case history is based off of the, the earthquakes that we've experienced in the U.S. and, and foreign countries as well. Um, you know, they, they, we see a type of uh, buildings and how they behave, whether they're steel or concrete, uh, masonry or wood. Uh, each of those has their own kind of uh, um, typical design and detailing. And that's what we bring to the to the, the team is our experience there. What we also do a, a lot of in what Champlain uh, in Florida was, was uh, it's called monitoring, which sounds like we just sit there and watch. And, and it's, it's a little more, <laughs> a little more in depth than that. What we're what we're doing is we're, we're, we're looking for active hazards. Like uh, if anyone saw uh, pictures of that building, uh, you know, the, uh, a large portion of it collapsed over the middle of the night, um, but there was still a, a piece standing. And that one was uh, really troublesome in that no one knew why it, it collapsed. I mean, a building had been around for 40 plus years. And so if you're looking at a building that's like, uh, I'll compare it to the Murrow building where you had a, a partial collapse and a standing structure well, we knew why that building collapsed. You know, it was attacked, and and uh, once that explosive had gone off, people you could figure out why did it, why did it fail where it did. With uh, Champlain, uh, they're still researching uh, now uh, on why it, why it collapsed and why it failed. So there's a lot of unknowns about it. If we're in an earthquake type response, an earthquake struck, uh, the movement of the building itself uh, could have caused the collapse. So uh, you kind of know what you're going into with Champlain. We didn't. So you still had a large um, uh, high-rise standing partially. And so there's a lot of debris hanging out of that building. It was concrete. And so one of our first tasks were, uh, when we got on site was to 
um, get out our total stations, which is a piece of surveying equipment, and use it to monitor the uh, portions of the building that were still standing to make sure that it, it wasn't moving or that there wasn't like a large piece that was going to maybe slide off and uh, injure someone down below as they were trying to, to begin those uh, early uh, recovery efforts. Yeah. Have you, have you looked at any of the photos that we have here of the Murrah, Murrah building that, that some of the engineers ins- took when they were out there? Yes, I have. Um, I actually have uh, some of the uh, survey manuals uh, from when the engineers were on site at, at uh, the Murrah building. Uh, doing basically some of the similar things that I was doing at, at Champlain with several other uh, core engineers as well as uh, some FEMA engineers that were tasked to support us. The, the reason I asked is because, you know, we have a few here in our office that were part of a lot of the stuff that we gathered when we moved from the other building. Yep. And and I, obviously it's a completely different scenario, but I just, when you look at the facade, you know how the, the the building is gone and it looks cut in half and it, it 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 reminds me of those photos what you saw at Champlain the 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 images and obviously it's a different the the whole thing was a different reason and everything but it just it was just weird how that part that was standing it just reminded me of some of yeah. those photos yeah uh, growing up in Oklahoma I'm very familiar with the Murrow building um, it's uh, definitely one of those things that. You know, that happened in 95, uh, as a year I graduated uh, high school. <laughs> and so it was one of those things I was thinking about. Uh, when I went into engineering, uh, I was had already enlisted in the, the Army National Guard for, for Oklahoma. And uh, at the time, I was uh, an EMT and, and a first responder. And so it, it was definitely something that I think was a... a uh, uh, a time in my life that affected it, you know, the future. And now looking back on it, you're right. There are some real similarities and, uh, talking with the other engineers, cause we had some who, who responded to, uh, Champlain who had been both at Murrow as a structure mm-hmm. specialist working as an engineer. It would have um, been pretty new at that time. I would imagine. It was, yeah. uh, the, 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 the new FEMA system, had, I believe, um, had been, revamped in like 94 mm-hmm. and the Murrow building was like one of the first instances of a large scale response with the current framework, uh, with the, the FEMA teams that we now are more familiar with. And, uh, one of those engineers is from uh, New York. He's a, he's a good friend of mine. He's another instructor with, uh, as part of our cadre who teach the training and he had responded to both, um, uh, the Murrow building, 9-11 and then Champlain. And that's one of those things that we, we talked about, you know, in some of our infrequent downtime was, and what are those similarities and, and what are the things that we can learn from it so we can use this as a, as a case study and, and better prepare for the next event, uh, unfortunately, whenever it, it should happen. So you guys have a proverbial sort of overwatch role too in, in structural. You're you're watching the 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 building, looking for for weak spots where potential items might fall, like you were saying for, or or, I don't know, uh, where rubble or something might move. Um, when I I know you you got like the call pretty quick that you were probably going to have to go or that you were going to be asked to go like. Was it the next day or the day after? Uh, I think it was like the 24th, and then you said you got the call like the 25th or something? I got a call from our um, headquarters program manager uh, on the 25th that initially it looked like uh, there was going to be enough uh, FEMA uh, resources that we likely wouldn't be called in to augment them. Like I said, they have uh, three to six engineers generally on their team. And... uh, it, it looked like at first that they had enough, so we were monitoring it, and uh, the the program manager actually deployed uh, via headquarters uh, to basically do start that fact finding for future case studies. So he was on site and working with the uh, uh, the IST, the incident support team that FEMA sends in to to help augment the local uh, incident command. Uh, he was working with this senior structure structural engineer that's part of the IST. They have one structural engineer uh, generally that is assigned to them. And uh, 
we're very familiar with, with uh, Scott, the, the gentleman who was part of the team in the response, and they noticed real quick that just based on the, the uh, layout of that building that they were going to need a, a lot more eyes on it, uh, more like what they had at, at the Murrow building and uh, what they ended up using at 9-11 to, to look at some of the adjacent structures. Um, so the call was put out, and a, and a mission assignment ended up coming about a, a week later. Uh, uh, we got it on, I want to say, oh, the second or the third. No, we were down there by the third, like the the, the first. Uh, we got it. Yeah, and, I think you told me you received confirmation of the verbal mission assignment or whatever. Yeah. On the on the on the first of July. Right. So it, it had been about you know a little under a week from when when the building initially uh, collapsed and. Our typical deployment, our, our agreement, our, our, our uh, um, SOU, our statement uh, of understanding or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll forgive me. I'm, I'm going to, yeah. <laughs> I just I just want people to make sure they know. Like you were talking about IST before. And the, what, is, what is that? Incident support team. Incident support team. Okay. I, I try and do that myself. No, it's, it's okay. It, it happens. <laughs> but uh, uh, what we have a two year ag agreement through headquarters for the engineers on the team. There are about 35 of us. Uh, we're on uh, monthly rotations, a red, white, and blue that matches FEMA's uh, monthly uh, red, white, blue uh, system. And there's roughly 10 to 12 on each team uh, that we try and maintain. We have a whole bunch of extra training we have to do. And uh, so when we got the call out, uh, we ended up sending eight, eight structural engineers from the Corps. Uh, and then another 12, I believe, came from... Uh, FEMA to augment us, so we had a, a crew of 20 that were doing the monitoring in it. It initially started out as, like I said, looking at, at specific items for the teams that were, uh, you know, there's, there's a rescue team that's uh, comprised of uh, FEMA personnel, largely firefighters, uh, there's uh, search and rescue dog handlers who are doing uh, uh, searching as well, uh, and uh, they're actively were working the pile and we were helping them by being able to be their eyes in the sky. Uh, the, the Champlain uh, complex, the way it was set up, that, that building had two large uh, condominiums, one on the north and one on the south, and um, we'd gotten access to the sixth and third floors of, of those buildings, and so we'd set up on the balconies and were able to look down and provide that, that oversight, overwatch. Um, as we moved through the fourth, and the, and the decision was made to implode the uh, remaining part of the, the building. Uh, we also were tasked with trying to map and get a three-dimensional uh, image of what the debris pile was before the, the implosion. Uh, the concern was if we would add a whole bunch of more rubble on top, right. you know, and, and obviously this, we're still in, in rescue mode at this time, and the, the concern was if we have to go through really slowly as we de-layer that debris pile, we'd have to go through like a whole you know, other half a building possibly. And so they wanted to know what did that three-dimensionally look like. And with our uh, surveying equipment, we were able to, to do a, a 3D mapping. Uh, There's also some other core folks that were there uh, out, out of the ERDIC system. The, um, some of the lab guys came out and were doing LIDAR and doing imagery. Um, Fortunately, the contractor who brought the building down uh, uh, was able to do it straight down so that it didn't add additional debris onto the, the area where we knew that there were our victims located. Um, once the building was brought down, uh, we got more hands-on and we were working that, the, the physical recovery effort uh, with the teams. We sent out uh, uh, two engineers at a time on the pile and they were helping identify components of the building because it's if you picture a large concrete building and it, it falls from either a great height or like the part of the building that was imploded it's hard to identify if you're not super familiar with what's the difference in a column and a beam and a slab it, it, and uh, with the, the forensics of it uh, Miami-Dade a homicide and uh, had contacted and was working with NIST uh, another agency under the Department of Commerce to do uh, forensics on the building, 
and they didn't have the engineers who were trained to, to work in that environment. And so uh, we ended up augmenting them and, and providing them uh, uh, basically our, our capabilities on the pile to help pull out evidentiary pieces so they can uh, do their studies after the fact. And uh, in the end, I think we were able to pull out over 600 pieces of the building oh, wow. um, and salvage those before they got got destroyed in, in the removal of the debris or, or and it, it was kind of a dual mission that one's something unique we hadn't done that before uh, so as part of that we were you know, obviously working and it's hard to describe what that environment looked like uh, a whole lot of concrete a whole lot of dust uh, a lot of rebar uh, obviously it's apartments you have everyone's contents that are that are in there and uh, uh, it's as as we moved through the uh, the rescue and uh, and uh, eventually uh, the local incident commander with I guess a, a, an agreement with the mayor and, and the local townsfolk had uh, decided we were moving into the recovery efforts. You know it's important as you're delayering moving through uh, that that you you get out people's uh, keepsakes and there are a lot of uh, a lot of things that. Uh, uh, whether it's a building that, that collapsed or the building that was imploded that, that uh, mean a lot to people, photos, wedding albums, that kind of thing. So they do a really good job of, of trying to collect those things and it, it helps them identify where in the building they are. Uh, we were working with the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF. Uh, uh, Israel has uh, developed some amazing uh, capabilities and uh, it's kind of like reverse social engineering. Uh, they did the studies to figure out who was in what apartments where, and they had a team back in Israel. We heard it was somewhere north of 20, maybe 30 people that were studying the imagery and studying the photos and stuff that we're pulling out and figuring out where we were in the building, um, who was likely to be in those uh, apartments. And so if we found an apartment and uh, we knew there may be, let's say, like an elderly couple, if there would be two or three or four people in there, so... Once we found one person, we're able to kind of uh, think we knew where we were. We would know that we needed to keep looking in that area because there could be, you know, like I said, up to two, three, four additional people. Uh, it's it's very important to to try and uh, give closure to those those families who who lost folks, and uh, uh, that part's uh, definitely something that it, it's it's hard to train for, but it's it, it it's why we're there. We're there to rescue. We're there to. Uh, to help in the recovery efforts and to bring closure to all those that were impacted. What, uh, was there anything in particular that you, that you all found that was just something that really stuck out to you? That I think, uh, when you first show up, uh, the way we are modeled, like I said, we have like a two year agreement. We have a six hour deployment window. Um, we're initially, uh, we initially think that we're going into it with like about a seven day mission and you're pretty much going to work the first 24 hours straight once you hit the ground. Yeah. Uh, like I, I landed at, at three fifty or something at, and I went straight from the airport to the site, uh, changed into my uniform outside, right. walked in, got badged, reported to the building and took over a monitoring station. Um, and then worked through, I ended up managing, and overseeing the day shift, which was uh, uh, noon to midnight, roughly. And so that, that first couple of days, you're just like in this go, go, go. Right. You don't even probably have time to think about like anything outside or external. You don't. I, you know, I, I don't think I called my wife or talked to any family back home for probably the first four or five days just because yeah. you're literally living that. I mean, we were, we were working some ridiculous hours. Yeah. 16, 18 hours. I know one guy was did something over 30 like before oh, wow. we could get everyone engaged and, and relief in. And then once you get past that, once you once it, things kind of get into a rhythm, mm -hmm. that's when you start. Like when I was working the pile, um, and it's it's you know we're in full PPE, uh, right? So it's our personal it's hot, protective right? equipment. Yeah. Oh, it's hot. Miami, it's, Florida area, right? And so. there, there's a there's a tropical storm moving through, <laughs> so. It's you know ninety plus humidity, ninety degrees. Uh, you're wearing uh, uh, 
fire rescue boots. Uh, you're wearing gloves, and we were wearing. We had to wear uh, respirators uh, due to the contaminants in the air, and so it, that, like I said, that first couple of days, you're just so into it that you do not really aware of some of this stuff. But after about five or six days, you start noticing smaller things. And I have little kids. I've got a nine and a six-year-old boys, and um, it was the Legos. Seeing, seeing oh, like, gosh. seeing like Legos. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, at, 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 it's when I start, then, then you like, it's kind of like, a, you, you start seeing the leaves in the forest and you're no longer looking at the right. forest and you really start looking and you start seeing people's wedding books and you start seeing photos and you start seeing, you know, these, most people take pictures of, of things that are joyous in their life, you know, right. whether it's birthday parties or, or, or yeah. like anniversaries. A lot of the, the folks in this building were elderly and it's, it's seeing those things that you start thinking about you know, uh, back home and you start thinking about your own, like, what if this was your family and what if this was, and it, it gets to you, it, it gets, it gets really emotional. Um, uh, how do you mentally prepare for that day in and day out when you're, I mean, once you've hit that point, do you, I mean, how do you even decompress from something like that? Uh, I'm going to get this acronym wrong. You're probably have to look it up. <laughs> it, okay. It's SISM. It's a, a critical incident stress management. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, is there somebody there? So there, uh, there are uh, there are people there uh, with definitely with the FEMA teams. They bring in medical professionals. They got mm-hmm. you know, uh, they got a lot of support to help right. the rescuers. Um, uh, the core itself, uh, you know, our our the in headquarters, the lead for the the SISM, that critical incident stress management group is uh, uh, command surgeon. Uh, Captain Janisco, and he came down okay. towards the end of our uh, uh, deployment and, and sat down and went through with us and uh, talked through some of, you know, what, what are those healthy uh, stress-relieving things and how do you move back into it? And it, it's like doing these interviews, uh, doing this, it's it's hard to describe the things that, that, you're, that you, you go through um, uh, unless you've been there. And, and he... Uh, so what he reminds us is, you know, you've got these 19 other folks that you went through this with. All in all, I think there's over 50-something structural engineers total who participated in this. And, and uh, whether they're on the state teams or the federal teams that responded, because we've trained with those guys and we trained them, uh, we know a lot of them. Uh, and so we know that we can reach out to them. And, you know, we, we uh, the, the core guys that were on my shift, uh, uh, one's from Baltimore, one's from Salt Lake City, and uh, we've talked a couple times since we've been back. You know, how are things going? You know, how's work? <laughs> Obviously, all was left in, in the middle of projects and construction, and you know, fortunately the, with the core, we've got a great, great team backing us. And so, and we had folks here back in Tulsa that were were filling in for me. They had folks that were filling in for them. But it it, it probably takes a week or so yeah. before you you kind of get back into the groove. Yeah. And you were there for what, like two, two, three weeks, right? Three uh, weeks. Yeah. I, I stay, I, so I, I deployed, I, like I said, I, I ended up uh, overseeing the daytime operations that mm-hmm. noon to midnight shift um, because our program manager had deployed early and he had been there about four or five days before the rest of us. Um, you know, he, he was working like, I want to say like 18 hour days every day because yeah. he's trying to cover both shifts <laughs> oh, man. to manage. Uh, so he was doing like a swing shift between the two operating shifts. Um, once we transitioned from recovery into evidentiary support with NIST, uh, as we closed out, uh, uh the project, uh, I stayed an extra week and I took over as the, the senior core guy, um, overseeing that mission. And I stayed for another four or five days until we brought in a relief team, which another another engineer from Tulsa, uh, Captain Grusing, ended up coming in on the relief team and helped close out and, and provided that. So I don't know if you're going to get to do another one of these, but uh, Matt's perspective on, on that coming in and doing the relief might be interesting as well. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely reach out to him when he gets back. Um, now, you, you, you were in the Guard, too. Are you still in the... National Guard? No, I got out in 2004. Okay. So had you deployed with them as well? Uh, similar type events. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, as, a, as a combat medic for most of my nine years, uh, I have background in, in 
guess my my MOS, if we want to go that deep, yeah. was uh, 76 Juliet, which is medical supply logistics at first. And then I quickly transitioned over to uh, a 91 Bravo. So you were um, a doc. Which is a combat medic, and <laughs> yeah. then, uh, which I guess now is a 68 Whiskey. Okay. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and I think that's kind of why I have the, the skill set for some of this is my specialty. I, I was at, and for the, most of my time, I was with uh, Charlie Company, 700 Support, uh, 45th Infantry here out of Oklahoma. And uh, as, a, as a hospital unit, uh, a lot of the time I was, I was functioning as like a triage sergeant. Mm-hmm. So uh, working outside the battalion uh, or the uh, uh, support hospital as that like sorting, like, you know, uh, that's kind of what, what we're doing here. We're triaging a building mm-hmm. versus triaging uh, you know, people. Uh, uh, so I think some of those skill sets still... I still take advantage of. Uh, and you have that same situation where you have like people who you were with when you were downrange or whatever. And yep. you're, you, 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 you talk to them every once in a while and reach out and you, you kind of lean on each other. I still do with a lot of those folks, uh, uh, whether it was uh, medical missions that we did in Central America uh, or whether it was uh, with the, some of the tornadoes that went through. Like, were you, were you in Honduras? Uh, yeah, in uh, Honduras, yeah. Joint Task Force Bravo. Yep. All right, me too. <laughs> uh, I actually, uh, <laughs> strange story there. Uh, that was uh, when I decided to, to get engaged to my wife, and I ended up going to Tegucigalpa. Oh. And I uh, met an expat who made an engagement ring for me, and I brought it back and asked my wife to marry me. That was while still in school. Did you fly into uh, Tegus? Uh, or out of Tegus? <laughs> I think we flew out of it. Yeah. It was a very, very interesting landing. <laughs> it is. Y'all need to ask Brandon about that sometime. Yeah. <laughs> that landing is, is, is interesting. Um, you, you like fly right up. Well, and I think it used to be even closer, but it, it, it feels like you're going to land on the mountain on the way, on the I, land I, of the runway. I, I think it's kind of like flying into, uh, is it Anchorage when you fly in that you're like facing the mountains? <laughs> you're like, I hope it stops. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a uh, that was a great that was a great trip. I was there in um, 2012, I think it was it 2000. Yeah, 2012, I was there. So from like uh, I want to say like the summer, right up until towards close to the end of the year. It was I think I came back before Christmas. Yeah, I came back just before Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, I was there in '99. Oh wow. <laughs> Oh wow! So, yeah, it's 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 changed. <laughs> I hope so, hope for the better. Um, so when when you saw, did you did you hear about the event from getting the phone call that you might deploy, or did you see it on the news? I, I know I know that's kind of a weird. Did did you see it on the news? And I want to say the way we, I can't remember honestly if I saw it first or if I talked to Jeff, the, our our program manager and lead structure specialist out of headquarters first. Okay. It's one of those things that we were constantly. Right. But so uh, I mentioned the three teams. Uh, the red team uh, is is on call in July. I'm the alternate team lead for the red team. So you get like a warning notice from Engelink yeah. saying, hey, your team's about to come up. You know, make sure you're either good to go or, you know, if you need to sign out for some reason, if you're not going to be available. Uh, so we tend to pay attention to these kind of things because this is like the things that unfortunately that, that we have to respond to. And so it's definitely one of those things. I can't remember honestly now I'd have to look up and see if Jeff called me first or if I called him uh, to see, or, you know, are you watching this? You know, it just looked like something that we're going to have to respond to. Um, and so, so it's definitely something that, uh, because I've been doing this for, for years, um, uh, uh my, even my wife, you know, and friends that I've engineers in the community, uh, since I, you know, I came out of the Tulsa professional uh, community before joining the Corps. You know, they'll they'll send me like text or something like, "Hey, did you see this building collapsed in Indiana or something mm-hmm. strange?" And and I'll be like, "No, no," and I'll start looking it up and start you know seeing kind of what the extent is. You know, who's there? Uh, because it is such a small community. Um, mm-hmm. One of our instructors, uh, I think he did a as all engineers do, he likes to do math and, and he figured out that most structural engineers are, are, are backgrounds in civil engineering. And he's figured out that half of 1% of structural engineers are structure specialists. And so we are, uh, 
we're a very small um, uh, segment of the profession, and we probably know like all two or three hundred of us in the country. Oh, there's only about two or three hundred of you in the country. Wow, yeah, total. That's if you took every state team, yeah. every you know, and and we're all uh, preparing for you know if if the next big earthquake in California and the, uh, uh, the New Madrid. Uh, the Cascadia event, maybe in, in the northwest, up in the Seattle area, mm-hmm. um, up into Alaska, uh, which you know, it, it's it's definitely something that that you, you're going to need that many engineers. If it took 50 of us to do that's a, a good, building for three weeks, that's that's a good portion of you. Yeah, yeah. What is it, what's it going to take? when we're talking uh, a, a large earthquake that maybe hits a, a, a housing community or or, or uh, some of the ones that have previously been in, in like California where you have multiple buildings that, that need to be investigated. So when you get like the either a text message or you see something on the news and uh, is that what's on your mind a lot of times is like I wonder if either well if you see it on the news, have you seen something on the news happen and then all of a sudden you turn around and you're like, there's your warning order in your text message or, or letting you know that you're about to get something coming down in your text message and you're like, oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. uh, Fortunately, the, the type of events like, like Champlain, those are out of the blue. You know, that, that, that collapsed in the middle of the night. Um, Yeah. It's, it's not like a hurricane or, Mm -hmm. or something where you, we see it and we're watching, oh, is this going to be, you know, is it going to be a four or a five or a three? Mm-hmm. Is it going to hit where Miami or Charleston or New Orleans again mm-hmm. or Houston? You know, so those you have time to prepare for. Right. And FEMA does, you know, they'll pre-deploy a team just like we do with the power team. Um, we'll send out folks and they'll be waiting mm-hmm. um, versus something that's more like a, a Murrow building or 9-11 where it's, it's out of the blue and, and then that's the logistics. So like mm-hmm. for us, it was, you know, we, we started tracking the calls. And uh, once we got that um, uh, mission assignment, that tasker to individually go, trying to, it's a, it's a holiday weekend. Yeah. Going to Miami, which is a popular tourist spot right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so trying yeah, it, to, you had a lay, you had a delay because of probably the logistics. Yeah, we had yeah. Uh, a couple of us had uh, delays in, in getting there um, uh, by almost a day. Uh, with just trying to get flights, yeah, and then with uh, the reduced flights now, and if they have yeah. any increment weather uh, uh, in between where you're trying to go versus where you're leaving, uh, you know it can cause further delays, uh, and and then just the silly ones like trying to find uh, a a hotel in in Miami to stay overnight. That's got lighting. that's yeah. got uh, uh, the the government per diem rate right. <laughs> over over the 4th of July weekend was not oh, easy, bet, which yeah. we, we were very fortunate in that uh, Carnival, I believe it was Carnival, uh, uh, volunteered a cruise ship. And they had a cruise ship that was being renovated that was docked. And so they brought a crew from like one next door to man it and provided us you know, three hot meals a day and, and, a, and a place to stay. Oh, wow. And it, it, it was being so uh, you 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 stayed on the cruise ship. The cruise ship was docked, uh, but I mean you 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 boarded it every night or before you went to bed. Yeah, wow. Which it, it, like I said, it, obviously it, you didn't get much time to like look around. You were just going to your well, room. Well, right? because it wasn't open, it wasn't staffed fully. Right. So it was pretty much just a, a like having a small floating dorm room. Yeah. Did it sleep better when you did? It, it, it was nice having uh, a, a place, you know, a, a dedicated place yeah. to sleep. Uh, the fact that they were doing laundry for us because you get amazingly yeah. dirty. I like, yeah, I bet. Yeah. It, it, and we're, we're, I think, I don't know how many people were on the boat at, at one time, but, uh, there was definitely several hundred, uh, there were bus loads that would rescue team people different yeah, from different dogs. Yeah. In there. It was oh, wow. So you, you had, you know, which, uh, bring some logistics into it for them. But, and, and um, uh, that, that uh, that town is about it's a little under six thousand people from what I I think that was the Surfside Surfside yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a little under uh, suburb of Miami you know yeah. um, did you get the did you get the the sense that the community has come together pretty well or oh absolutely uh, one of the amazing things uh, 
so normally uh, the things that we, we deal with when we deploy is because we're with a we're a small element of the core. You know, we're we're one of the smallest uh, response teams out there. Right. We normally deploy in twos, fours, sixes, uh, outside of Haiti, uh, where we sent uh, large teams to help after that earthquake. And like I said, Oklahoma City and 9-11, there haven't been a whole lot of large deployments of our our cadre. Uh, so we don't deploy with, uh, you know, large support staff. Right. So it, we generally are, are uh, either sleeping in vehicles or sleeping in what apartments we can find or uh, 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 hotel rooms we're often sharing because we're on like night and day shifts. Right. And just making the best out of what you can. Uh so when you show up and they, they, they had housing ready for us, the ship was ready. We just showed up. Uh, they'd already given them our name, and we walked in. I, I didn't get there until 2.30 in the morning, uh, the first time I actually got to go uh, and stay. And it, it took maybe 10 minutes to, like, board and get on and get to a, a signed room and, and crash. Wow. Uh, and then the other one was... Uh, that's uh, a big deal. Like that really, I, that's really a big deal when you can get into a place and you don't have to spend a whole lot of time unpacking or, or trying to like, you know, wait there. You, you can kind of like just go to your room, maybe take a shower and, and yep. just fall on your, on your bed and sleep. That is, yep. that is a, I mean, just the, that is such a big deal that because like is. the mental aspect of it too, it lets you like actually kind of rest, you know, that and uh, an NGO, a non-government yeah. organization, yeah. Uh, uh, World Kitchen Cuisine, hmm. I think that's the name of it, was doing meals. And they do them all. I think this was one of the first times they've deployed for kind of this type mission in the U.S. They do them in other countries. Uh, but they they partner with local food trucks and restaurants. And so they were putting out something ridiculous, like 3,000 hot meals a day. Oh, that's amazing. Um through part of it, and uh, so uh, bas- our basic necessities were taken care of, yeah. you know, and that takes a lot of the logistics out of, of not having uh, on-site uh, active support. We did have uh, uh, Jacksonville District was, their EOC was how we, uh, Emergency Operation Command was how yeah. we, we uh, uh, were contracted and were facilitating our mission so we did have a local uh district that was supporting us but they just they weren't on site with Mm -hmm. so you were kind of reaching back to them well how long were you there before you finally got to call your wife and and kids and talk to them i want to i want to say i i probably didn't call back until fourth or fifth day okay um it was uh, actually no, I know when it was. It was the Fourth of July Be- oh, okay. because the, that was the day that they imploded the building oh, that okay. night at like ten forty. Uh, because we had, everyone had to clear the site, so they could do that. So we yeah. had, and we had to wait for the building to, to come down, and then to, for them to go in and make sure that, that there weren't any unexploded ordinances or anything uh, before we could go back to work. Uh, so we had. You know, a few hours downtime, uh, and that was the first time I'd I'd talked to her. That's a whole that's a whole another animal too, isn't it? That whole like that where the guys that do the the demolition of the building oh, yeah. because it, you have to know what all the stress points and specific. There's a specific. It's a science and oh, art yeah. too. I mean, that's a small. That is definitely a small group of of contractors and and professionals that do that work. I believe that the the firm that did. Champlain also did the Murrow building. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, and uh, when 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 they're when they're recruiting for for deployment teams, the different deployment teams for the Corps, um, and you know, obviously, a lot of times we're falling under FEMA. I know here one of the one is the main one for for the rest of us who aren't typically engineers. A lot of it is. Um, is power team. That's what a lot of us do. And one of the, one of the things that one of the sort of the, I don't want to say recruiting, but one of the things that they tell you when you, when you join up with something like that is it's a good opportunity to, to do something different for a little while. And 
you're you're doing something different, but it really still is very much connected directly to what to your your primary job here at the core in terms of you know engineering. So, what for you? Why why do you why do you why are you part of that team, and why have you maintained it? I think the answer I'd give to that would is kind of well, like you know I said I have little kids. I got a nine and six year old, and they're like, well, why do you got to go? And I said, because I can. Uh, there's people who need help. Um, I've got the training to do it. I've got the expertise and the experience to do it. And uh, I, I feel the same way about, you know, it's something to give back. It's something that, that needs to be done. Uh, it's, there are a lot of really good engineers, uh, not only in this office and this building, uh, but just in the community at, at large. There are not a lot that can work in those kind of environments because of my background in the military, my background as a first responder, um, that type of ability to work in a high pressure situation where if you're gonna make a recommendation that someone either take down this wall or go through this opening or or you're gonna take apart this pile and you're not gonna endanger or not gonna make it more dangerous for, for those rescuers right around you, that's hard, it's a hard call. There's some that, that get the training, and then when they actually have to execute, it's it's a lot of pressure. If you're if you're gonna okay, I'm gonna pick up, you know, 10, 15 tons of debris, and it's not gonna make it worse, you know, or I'm gonna tell someone that it's you need to go through this window instead of that door, or you need to avoid this, um, or the. Uh, uh, worst case would be if, if we're watching it and we think something's moving and we're going to clear the site, we're going to tell everyone to get back because something could happen. Um, you know, that, that, that's a lot of pressure. Um, I, I just think it's a strange circumstance that, that my background before I became an engineer um, kind of led me to this position where I can use my professional experience and expertise with my military training um, and be able to, to do this kind of operation and, and serve on these teams with a lot of these great folks. It's, it's an amazing thing. I'm really glad I do it. I'm glad to be half of that or a part of that half percent. Um, but uh, it, I'd say the same thing I told my kids. I do it because I can and, and I should. You feel a, a sort of a moral obligation, so to speak, that you, you, because you have the training, you have the ability to do it. Have you ever seen anybody in those situations, and you don't have to be specific, obviously, but have you seen people react to it and, and, and maybe come to that realization, like you said, that, that maybe this isn't the thing for them to be it, trying to do? Or It happens. It's not often. Uh-huh. A lot of times they're still able to, to, to work it, but then they, when they get back home, they, they, they drop off and that's what they should do. I mean, if it's not, if you can't, um, do that on a, on a daily or routine basis for one of these events, you definitely don't want to put yourself or anyone else at danger. Um, so there, there have been a few that, that have, uh, come back from, from a deployment like this and, and said, you know, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. And, and I, I use the term moral obligation, but for you, you know, you feel, you feel like you have the ability to do it and it's something you can, you can deal with and, and handle. Yeah. Uh, I've, that's probably a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what are you, what, Okay, I'm gonna put this. Um, so you said there's about a it's about a half percent of the community that that has these specific skills and and or training and skills and uh, that are right for, for what you guys do, um, which comes down to a few hundred people in the United States altogether. Yeah, there's probably that have totally come through the system that may have either retired or left a, a team, uh, moved uh, for there's probably a total of maybe four or five hundred that have been through the training. There's probably another two to, like I said, 300 active. 
And for the core, uh, you know, we maintain a cadre of roughly 35. Uh, you know, it, it takes quite a bit of, of additional training to, to do this. You gotta be, uh, you gotta meet all the FEMA requirements. Uh, and then we have uh, a week-long training, uh, Structure Specialist One that we do each October. Uh, we do a, a, a level two course, uh, Structure Specialist Two. We're really creative with names there. <laughs> in uh, in May, uh, that's the one that I mainly uh, assist with, and and then we do uh, quarterly uh, regional trainings for annual. So everyone has to go through the the first week-long training. Uh, to maintain your your readiness and your certifications, you have to um, maintain uh, uh, annual refresher kind of training. That's what that regional training is. And with the, the, the current uh, COVID environment, distance working, teleworking, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to do those virtually. Um, but like I said, part of that is, you know, until people actually deploy, they don't know if they're going to be able to physically handle it. Well, some of that actually is physical. Um, you know, trying to walk across a, a concrete rubble pile uh, with uh, the, this one had, you know, crushed cars in it and had large debris and rebar. And there's a lot of commotion going on as you got excavators working right next to you. Um, saws and jackhammers and, and all kinds of uh, equipment. So it's loud. It's it, your feet are very unstable. Um, there's some folks that don't have the physical dexterity to, to maneuver uh, uh, safely. And so part of the training is, is we work them through that and we see how they, they physically can negotiate. We have uh, rubble piles that we've set up that we use for training. Um, a lot of it, uh, although this, uh, the, Ch the Champlain uh, uh, deployment didn't have any, Oftentimes we have to go into the structures and there's a confined space element there. And it's, it's a little different than saying, oh, okay, I can, I can operate maybe like for those that are in the core, like in a, a conduit or something that's, it's classified as a confined space, but you know, it's, it's pretty still, big though. You still got some airspace around yeah. you versus crawling through a hole in a, in a collapsed building. Not much bigger than an HVAC with like, uh, the smallest one I know I've crawled through that was simulated was I crawled through a, uh, a, a standard filing cabinet drawer. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, and you fit through with a lot of effort. <laughs> wow. Uh, and so we, we do a lot of confined space training. We do a lot, we do firefighter training, not to put out fires, but, uh, uh, low rescue and high angle rope, uh, uh, training, uh, so that, if we need to, you know, we can rig up and we can drop in via rope. We can be rescued by rope. Um, uh, some things we do when we respond to these kind of events that are different than this one, and we do uh, mapping from inside the building. So you're trying to like crawl around and and use like a laser pointer or even something as simple as like a tape measure to try and figure out where all have they ex have they have the rescuers been. It's kind of like trying to map an ant tunnel from what's inside the tunnel without knowing what the tunnels look like. Oh, wow. Um, uh, so we do things like that. We do a lot with, uh, it, uh, we do some work with wide area search, uh, where we're training this, this exercise. We use survey one, two, three for all you, uh, GIS folks out there that, that are familiar with survey one, two, three. Um, we were using it to locate, uh, uh, things within the, the collapsed, uh, uh, portion of the building. Um, and we were using drones for the first time where we would identify something, serve, uh, market survey one, two, three, get the GPS coordinates, get a photo, and then we would fly a drone over and have a drone come down and hover and take a picture of it in relation to the, the rest of the building. How helpful is that when you can have something like a drone? Is it? Did you find it extremely useful? Don't know yet. Uh, okay. Uh, because we weren't actually operating them. They were done by... Uh, Florida International University okay. uh, yeah. was doing one of them, one of the, one of the, I think one of the firefighting uh, response teams that was there actually was doing some drone flights as well. Uh, we'll see how much it, it, it changes. I know it delayed us sometimes because it, it took time to coordinate. Uh, uh, Flight plans. Yeah. It, you know, they're, they're full FAA. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're, 
they're coordinating amongst themselves. And it, uh, I mean, it was, it's still, I believe, registered as a no-fly zone over yeah. that, that, that structure. And so trying to work out, you know, who was there, you know, if there was, yeah. if there were multiple drones flying, trying to get one cleared out so the one you're working with could come in. Um, I think it's something that we'll see. Uh, as we move forward with uh, modernization and, and new new technologies, uh, I think uh, drones, uh, you know, they've, they've been used in several, uh, uh, we use, uh, let me back up, uh, in addition to drones, you know, we use borescopes and we use other uh, uh, technology to do like infrared scanning and to do mm-hmm. uh, uh, camera access, you, you know, if anyone's, I don't know if any of the photos have become uh, published yet, but you're likely to see some folks with some pieces of equipment where they're running a, a, like a fiber optic camera down mm-hmm. into the debris to see if they can uh, locate somebody or, or uh, uh, avoid or an area of refuge that someone might have uh, taken cover in. Uh, so we're, we're adapting that technology, but it, it's something that you really don't know until probably a year or two later, you know, as it, when you get the after-action reports back on, yeah. on the, the use of the technology, yeah. Um, you, you do a lot of work with STEM as well, right? Like, I mean, you're, you're, I know we were at an event once, and you were out there judging um, for, for one of the contests, weren't you? Yep, uh, I do. Uh, with SAME, right? With uh, SAME? Yep, uh, for uh, uh, SAME. Uh, I think for that event, that's the uh, Tulsa Engineering Foundation's Technology Challenge. Uh, the that's the largest uh, kind of active science fair or uh, engineering and science uh, uh, competition that's held in the Tulsa area. Uh, roughly 1,200 kids, I think, participated in it. Uh, last year we had to do it virtually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like when you went, uh, I was doing the event for the where kids make a, a ping pong launcher out of a mousetrap right. spring. Uh, this I rewrote the the rules this year so that since it was virtual and I wasn't sure everyone could get ping pong balls at, at home that they were able to launch marshmallows, <laughs> and so you know they they would uh, I had them build the same kind of uh, launcher and then take pictures of it and then you know uh, try and see how many marshmallows they could uh, fit in a like a uh, I think it was a two liter I told them to, I told them to take like a two liter and cut a two liter in half and make that your target. Oh wow! And then you know, from ten feet away, see how many you can make in two minutes, and then you know, kind of take some pictures of how they had it set up, and then provide a little bit of a, a video or something, some photos and some analysis on you know, just a paragraph on on what they could have done better. Um, but uh, yeah, that's something I've been doing uh, with that specific for, gosh, I know it's been over fifteen years. Oh wow! Uh, before that, I've also been the, the for the Tulsa district back when they did the. Tulsa Science Fair. Mm-hmm. Um, I represented uh, Tulsa District and the, uh, the Army. They'd asked us at one point to do the Army Awards for the Science Fair. So, um, yeah, it's something, uh, STEM is definitely something that uh, uh, I find important. Uh, I think it's, you know, not only, I've been doing it long, long before I had kids, it's, it's something I think that as, as we as an engineering and, and scientific community, we need more of us. <laughs> and, uh, if there's anything we can do to get kids engaged and, and know that it's more than just uh, doing calculations or math, that, that the application of, of math, which, which I, I, the simplest terms would probably be physics, <laughs> is uh, what makes things fun. You know, there's, it's, it's great to see uh, the, the, the amazing things that a, a child can create, uh, whether it's a, a Lego like I mentioned with, with my my kids and seeing the the strange contraptions they make, or if it's a something as simple as making a a, a mousetrap throw ping pong balls. <laughs> There's a certain amount of creativity too uh, for people who who have that ability to to really ap- apply what it is that they're um, they're doing. You know? Yeah, it, there really is. A, I don't know when you're going to air this, but you know this is during the Olympics, and if you just watch, like I think. Two, three nights ago, they started the field events. Mm-hmm. Uh, every piece of equipment, that, like from the javelin to the pole vault to uh, even the hurdles and and the uh, the components that they use, 
has to have engineering involved in it, right? So uh, when I when I go out and I, I speak with uh, uh, schools, if I do a presentation or or tell them kind of about what what engineering is like to be a professional engineer, um, yeah, I, I ask them, well, what 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 excites them? Is it sports? You know, is it football? Well, think about all the things in football that that have an impact. You know, right now with traumatic brain injuries and with uh, uh, effects of concussions and, and multiple concussions, the, the science and engineering that's going into a football helmet is amazing. Uh, same with the pads and the cleats and anything that can make you run faster, make you hit harder, but safer. I know you can see that in golf, right? Like, oh, especially yeah. with golf, like the way like the way the ball, the balls are even different in yeah, golf the, now than they were twenty or thirty years yeah, ago. Yeah, the, the numbers of dimples on them, the the the, the composite and, and uh, how the densities and the material differences in, in a golf ball versus the the heads and the, the flexibility of the shafts. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty neat. Uh, and those are things that it, kids who maybe like you know, I'm, I'm from a, uh, Colgate, Oklahoma, which is a, a, a small. A town in southeastern, south central Oklahoma. Uh, not a lot of engineering going on there as a profession, but it, it's a it's a ranching and a farming community, and there's a lot of tractors, and there there really is engineering there. Mm-hmm. It's just not something that maybe your average high school or middle school student's going to see as engineering. You know, they're going to see it as something that you know they whether it's a diesel mechanic, whether it's uh, a welder, a fabricator there's a whole lot of engineering that goes into that and you can either choose to, to go in and do those professions, which is a, which is great. Or if you want to go in and improve them and make them better, you can go in engineering. And, and that's something that I think we should be, uh, you know, uh, in, instilling in our, in our kids and the, the next couple of generations that hey, engineering is just not, sitting there doing reports and, and calculations it's whether it's the search and rescue stuff it's at you know field application of engineering principles in a hostile environment or whether it's uh, developing a new sports component uh, you know there's a lot out there is there anything that uh, that i haven't asked you that you had wished i'd asked you that maybe i should have brought up or Oh, that sounds like one of those questions they ask you at the end of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I figured it was better. Was is there anything you'd like to add? What what should I have asked you that I didn't? Yeah, uh, he asked a lot of good questions. I think uh, I think this this program is, is great. I think uh, getting to know maybe beyond the surface level of what what some of the folks here in the core are doing, uh, whether it's from an operator at, like a, at the a Navlock or whether it's uh, uh, someone in hydropower or uh, environmental, one of the archaeologists. Uh, I think those are the neat things. Uh, the core is amazing. It's a, it is a large group of, of highly trained individuals. And oftentimes we get too focused on what we're doing. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes it's neat to pull back and see kind of what, what I think some of the other folks are doing. So I hope someone out there enjoyed Listen to me ramble on about this. Nah, uh, wasn't rambling at all. I didn't think so. But I, I hope you keep doing these. These. Uh, I even like the the ones that uh, you've got put up on the monitors, where it's just the little, uh, you know, couple things, you know, about no. this. I don't know if it's a spotlight or. If oh, the spotlights. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, just just that little uh, uh, window into someone's life is is neat, especially now that we're. A lot of people are teleworking, not that many people in the building. We don't see, you know, I, I've probably only seen you three times in the last year. Not not really. I, I don't, maybe twice since uh, we were doing the building inspections for the, the COVID centers. Because yeah. you headed up that team as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I think I saw you where we all got together. And then I went out with Major Swain and his group. And, um but, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure I mention that, you know, the town of Surfside, they have links on their website for people affected by the building collapse there. Um, you can go to www.townofsurfsidefl, as in town of Surfside, Florida, .gov, .gov. Select the Champlain Tower South information link when it appears on the rotator. I believe it's the second or third item on the rotator. 
I want to thank you uh, for joining us, Chris. I really, it was really great sitting down and talking to you and learn. I, I had no idea you had spent all that time in the guard and and um, had been a. You were also a joint task force Bravo alum. Like, there's a small group of us in that little group too. Colonel Childers, who was here, was a, a JTFB guy yeah. too. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. He's he's up in uh, Walla Walla. Walla Walla district. Yeah, yeah. he's a commander now. Walla Walla. Yeah. So right one now. of his engineers, uh, one of his engineers, was one of the ones that joined us in Surfside. Oh really? Yep. Oh really? So how many how many different districts would you say were represented while you were there? How many do you think? I mean, roughly. Uh, Walla Walla, Baltimore, uh, Salt Lake City, which is actually out of Sacramento, strangely enough. Uh, uh, St. Louis, uh, Tulsa, and uh, SPD, South Pacific Division, Division. Office. Uh, I think that's. Oh, and Denver. That's it. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, you know what? One thing I would like you to do, give me your 15-second elevator speech for why people should come work for the Corps. If you haven't already, if you've listened to this thing, this entire thing, and you've, you haven't gotten, like, why you should come work for the Corps, especially if you're an engineer or you're a STEM person, someone with a STEM background, what, what would you say is, what, what would you say is the, the best reason? The best reason for coming to the Corps if you're an engineer or a STEM person um, really is the, the diversity of the work, our varied mission, our, the business lines are so different that you can work from civil works to milcon to hydropower, navigation, recreation, uh, environmental, um, that there's something that we can each, I think, uh, find that, that is a, a draw to us. Uh, that combined with the great people and the camaraderie. Uh, you know, I mentioned uh, uh, needing support here. Uh, you know, you're part of the power team, Carrie Stark. Uh, even though she was off and it was like the weekend, she was helping me out while I was gone, having to get timesheets and all the stuff that you have to do when you're on de yeah. deployment. You don't see that in the private sector. You know, I've been there. I've, I've worked uh, uh, for a few firms, uh, as I mentioned, and it's, it's really the combination of the diversity of the work, the people, and the work-life balance that it really makes the core a great place to be. Thank you for joining us for Core Struction, Episode 5. Core Struction is a production of the Tulsa District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Public Affairs Office. To learn more about the Tulsa District, you can visit our website at www.swt.usace.army.mil. You can receive the most up-to-date information about the Tulsa District and the Corps of Engineers by following us on social media, usually at USACE Tulsa, all one word. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day.